Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, picking up where we finished last week in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is still in that garden. And in the very next scene, starting in verse 47, he is about to be betrayed, as he predicted, and arrested. I want to give you the big idea for the message right from the bat, right from this opening thought before we read the text. The big idea of this passage, as far as I'm understanding it, and as we're going to give our attention to it today, is that there are many people who think that they know Jesus and are even trying to follow him, but they have misunderstood Jesus. There are many people who misunderstand Jesus, who he is and what his purpose is. Are you one of them? There are a lot of people that were Jewish people around the time of Jesus that were using the Bible, their understanding of reading the Old Testament, coming to conclusions about the way they read the Old Testament, and therefore thinking this is what the coming king, the Messiah, would be like. Bible people misunderstood Jesus. There were many people that were around Jesus, heard his teachings, spent time with him, and were discipled by him that misunderstood Jesus. Are you one of them? Are you a Bible person who wants to spend time with, listen to the teachings of Jesus, and perhaps call yourself a Christian only to be confronted with the reality that perhaps you're misunderstanding who he is and what he came to do. I think this concept and thought is in some ways terrifying, sobering, and utterly relevant to you who are trying to live your life in accordance with the teaching, the life, the ministry of a first century man named Jesus, who we call the Christ. So let's look at our text and let's see if this thesis statement that many people misunderstood who Jesus was, a whole bunch of different kind of people misunderstood who he was and what he came to do. Starting in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. 
And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Yet again, the big idea is that many people have misunderstood Jesus, who he is, And what he came to do, and the question for us is, will that be you or me? Is your understanding of Jesus rooted in what Jesus says about himself? And the aim of this sermon is to hopefully give you three things that Jesus seems to suggest that he is not, to clarify, to make sure we understand, okay, that's not what Jesus is like. That's not who he is. And therefore, we can worship the one true God-man, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. For the sake of this sermon, I think it might be helpful to work backwards in the text and start at the bottom. And we want to specifically look at the things Jesus says in today's message. So, I want you to first look at that. In verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Have you come out as against a robber? The word is lestes. It is the word that is used for criminals. Could be a robber, but more often it is associated with somebody who is a revolutionary, an insurrectionist. Somebody that is opposing the Roman government. That's the word that is used here. Have you come out as against a revolutionary? So, first, Jesus is not a violent revolutionary. He's explicitly saying that to these people as a rhetorical question. Who do you guys think that I am? Really? What's the deal with the swords and the clubs? Do I look like a violent revolutionary. And this is further illustrated by the fact that he says, day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. It's not as if these people did not have experience or knowledge or time around Jesus. It's not because of their ignorance per se that they are misunderstanding Jesus and that they had no prior interactions with him whatsoever. Jesus makes it plain, you guys had plenty of chances to seize me when I was in the temple. And I think the reason for Jesus's question is in part to point out their cowardliness. It's a question to point out why here and now? Why use one of my own people to betray me? 
And I think that you can look back in Matthew's gospel and find that one of the key answers to that question is that they were afraid of the crowds, for Jesus had gained much popularity, and therefore they're doing this in the middle of the night, in a garden outside of the temple, away from the crowds, with the help of one of Jesus' 12 disciples, namely Judas. And the question that Jesus asks right here in verse 55 is, have you come out as against a robber should make clear to us that Jesus' mission is not to be a violent revolutionary. So let's just pause for a minute. Let's let that sink in. Does that correspond with your understanding of Christianity, of following Jesus? Have you misunderstood Jesus? Do you think that Jesus is a violent revolutionary? And for some of you, that may seem like an obvious question, like, no, of course not. Jesus heals sick people. He, he loves the hurting and the weak, and he's friendly and loving, and I, I think of him as a nice guy, not as a violent revolutionary. But we live in a day today where not too long ago, people who are Christians in the United States of America, in the very month that we are, January 2021, are naming the name of Jesus and are doing what we would call violent, revolutionary acts in our country. Not just because of their political stance, but because of their Christian stance, their view of Jesus. Apparently, according to a recent study that was coming out, the majority of Christians in the United States of America, many people in the United States of America, are confused about the idea of the kingdom of God being sought first versus the kingdom of the United States of America. And for many Christians in this country, these two things are seen as synonymous. God and the worship of God and the preservation of a Christian nationalist identity are seen as that's the same thing. Two or three weeks ago, I was on the phone with someone that I had met a while back this summer. He's living in Alabama, and I was having a conversation with him about all the political tor- turmoil that's going on regarding the election that just happened and all the things that many of you, I'm sure, are well aware of. And as we were having this conversation, he told me that where he lives in Alabama, he knows nobody in his churches that he's visited, in his friendship circles, that does not seem to have some sort of mixing and understanding of Christian nationalism and the Christian faith. And when I say the term Christian nationalism, I mean a sort of understanding that we want this nation to be a Christian nation that is following biblical ideals and norms and that that is the way it should be governed and structured. And for many people, they're going to say, that sounds fine. But then there's extremes of this view that say, at all costs, even if it means violence, and the Constitution of the United States is an inspired document by the Holy Spirit. Like, that's the sort of spectrum that things are on regarding Christian nationalism. Jesus is not a violent revolutionary. This is clear. He is being misunderstood as one, and he is clarifying right here in our passage 
this has nothing to do with who I am and the kind of person I am. If that's what you think I am, you have misunderstood me. So, members, attenders, followers of Jesus, I ask you, have you misunderstood the person and the calling of Jesus? Has our pursuit of a Christian America become so overwhelming that we have lost Christianity altogether? We have lost the Christ. There are a lot of things that we could say regarding caveats and things that we should probably be understandable and patient with and different political views. I would want to suggest just one basic concept for the members of Embassy Church as we continue to think through this conversation, a practical application for all of us. Corresponding to the very core identity of who we are as a church, let's have conversations regarding our differing views and opinions about how the best way for America and the United States to govern itself and our politics. I think these are fine conversations to have. Let's put those in the background. Let's put Jesus and the gospel in the foreground. Let's have conversations where it's clear to all of us that we are seeking first the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, first and foremost, no questions about it, no assumptions needing to be made. We're most excited about Jesus' kingdom. America could fall. The United States of America could get taken over. But Jesus' kingdom will never fail. It will last forever. The word of the Lord will stand. And what if we had a community of people that were saying, oh, that's solid. That's not assumed. We're going to repeat that to each other. We're going to regularly talk about that. We're going to be the most excited about that idea. And then on the basis of that understanding, we can then bring secondary background issues into the conversation. The problem I have been seeing and noticing outside of embassy, more often than not, is that the roles are reversed. Jesus and his kingdom seems to have taken a back seat. Who he is and what he has done seems to be more of like an afterthought or an assumed idea. And the political understandings about Christianity and the world are the foreground of many conversations, perhaps many of the conversations that you and I are having. So I want to suggest that as we apply this to our lives in our church and our conversations both in the church and outside the church, let's be a community of believers that foreground the gospel, the identity of Jesus as he reveals himself here. And here he reveals himself not as a lestes, not a violent revolutionary. And if you'd like to have fun and play on words and think about this concept. Jesus is a revolutionary. He turned the world upside down. He is a revolutionary, just not a violent one. He's one that teaches that if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. He's the one that teaches that if you're asked to go a mile, then go an extra mile. He's the one that says, don't just tolerate your enemies love them, and pray for them. And in many ways, when we embody the ethic and teaching and the way of Jesus, the way he has not only taught us in his word, but lived out even in the very passage we're reading now, 
It is a whole different kind of revolution that Jesus is thinking about and bringing about and has brought about. All revolutionaries, whether they're the ones on the national capital steps for good or for bad, whether you agree with what they did or did not, all revolutionaries are oftentimes in the worldly sense about overthrowing the people that they don't want in power so that they could then be in power. Jesus is not about overthrowing just the people. He is overthrowing the whole system, the whole mindset. It's not about overtaking with violence so that now he could be the one that has power over them. It is by having a new kind of power altogether, a power of love and sacrifice and others-centeredness, a completely different revolution altogether. So let's get our minds straight. Jesus is a revolutionary, and his revolutionary love means that he would die on a cross between two leistes, the very same word used here we will see in the next chapter when it says that there were two criminals, two revolutionaries, and in many sense, He died as a revolutionary to put to death all previous and future revolutions and say there's a new way to have power. There's a new way for the kingdom to exist. And this, my friends, is the power that we as Christians should be striving for and seeking first and foregrounding in our conversations and lives. And that's our first observation by this last statement in our text. Have you come out as against a revolutionary, a robber, a criminal with swords and clubs to try and capture me? Who do you think I am? You have misunderstood me. Let's move back up the text to the second statement Jesus makes in verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? It sounds very similar to the last passage we just looked at. Jesus is questioning and stating, what do you think's going on here? We don't know from Matthew's gospel, but in the gospel according to John, he names this disciple. And he says that it was Peter which shouldn't be a surprise. Peter just said just moments ago, if you look back up in verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 33, Peter answered to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so we see illustrated Peter's zeal and his passion and his commitment that he is willing to do whatever it takes to protect and defend the ministry and the person of Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 51. Peter then is the disciple, and it says, Behold, one of those who were with him, Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus is not a violent revolutionary, and here we see in his interactions with Peter, Jesus is not a violent Jewish nationalist zealot. There's an entire group of people that were 
a kind of denomination, a branch of the Jewish community before Jesus even arrives onto the scene. We know from his mixture of disciples that some of his disciples were tax collectors, some of his disciples were fishermen, some of his disciples were zealous because they were a part of the zealot group. It's similar to the groupings, if you've ever heard of Pharisee or Sadducee, there are different groupings of what it means to be an Israelite. And in Jesus' day, one of those groupings were the zealots. And what they did was carry around swords, gather in into little uh, groups of people, and they would try and overthrow the Roman government using violence and force. This was a very well-known, well-documented, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, historical reality of the Jewish context that we're walking into when we read the Gospels. And it seems clear from the context here that regardless of what Peter's upbringing was and whatever kind of ideologies he might have had, he is very much embodying the mindset of a zealot Jew. That the nationalistic view of preserving the Israel ideas and and the protection of the Messiah and thinking we're going to come and overthrow the oppressive powers of the Roman government. Peter is willing to do whatever it takes. He's willing to die, which sounds courageous, but he has misunderstood Jesus. Peter, one of his closest disciples, not just one of the 12, but one of the inner three. Peter misunderstood Jesus as being a zealous nationalistic Jewish man that would do whatever it takes, even violence, to bring about the kingdom of God on this earth. And when Jesus says to him, put your sword back into its place, he is settling and clarifying once and for all, no, that is not the way. I do not use swords or guns or weapons to advance my kingdom purposes. I have a different kind of power, a different kind of revolution. It will be love of God and love of neighbor and love of enemy. And all of these things are used by the kingdom of God to overthrow the kingdoms of this world. But Peter is being put in stark contrast with that. And so, if you would, think about the New Testament scripture reading that Stacy read for us. You have two options. You can use in your flesh the idea that I am going to pursue the way of being a Christian by using means of force and violence like the Crusades or any other kind of historical example to advance God's purposes. In the name of God, as a follower of Jesus, I will use violence, like Peter does. Even if you're trying to defend something that you don't want to be taken away. Or, you can choose a different kind of sword. The sword of the Spirit. Which is what I believe Jesus is alluding to when he is referring to, for take your sword, if you take it, you will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus' answer is saying, Oh, Peter, my power is not the power of physical violence and force. It is through prayer to call upon my father. And if I needed his spiritual support to advance 
my purposes in this way, I could do it. And the only way to really understand what's going on here and ask, well, why wouldn't he do it, is the last passage we just covered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus already asked, Father, is there any other way? Could we bring the, the legions of angels? And the answer was, no. There's no other way. And Jesus says, then not my will, but yours be done. And so there's a consistent pattern we see in this passage and throughout the ministry of the disciples that they misunderstand the ministry of Jesus. It is not by a sword in the hand. It is by a sword in the spirit that we advance the kingdom purposes. And so I refer to last week's message yet again to say the importance of prayer as a basic concept for you and I to understand how we're going to seek first the kingdom of God, to foreground the kingdom purposes, is to give ourselves to the word and prayer and arming ourselves in the spiritual battles. It's, it's what, quite a, a number that Jesus gives, though, isn't it? A Roman legion has 6,000 men in it. So if you take this literally, 6,000 angels times 12 legions, 72,000 angels. Does that overwhelm any of you to think, whoa, he's not just talking about a couple angels here or there. He's talking about an army, a host, a force that he has at his disposal. And Jesus could have called upon all of that force, and he said that he did it because it must fulfill the scriptures. It must be so. I'm submitting to the will, the plan of the Father. I have already made up my mind. I am going forward with this. In the garden, he was stressed out. After the garden, after his season of prayer, he seems calm, resolute, convicted. This is the way. Even when his disciples all around him don't get it. And it's not the first time we saw them earlier, as I mentioned, when they were eating at the Lord's Supper. But how about this example in Matthew 16, when the same man, Peter, they were at Caesarea Philippi. Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's who you are. He got the answer right. He didn't misunderstand who Jesus was, or did he? Right after Jesus said, yes, that's right. I am that one, the Christ. I am the king, the long-awaited promised Messiah. That's who I am. Jesus then said, and I will die. And the way that I will be enthroned, the way that I will become the king is through my death. And Peter says, never, no, trying to help Jesus not go forward with this plan. He is consistently getting in the way of Christ's kingdom purposes. And it only gets worse after this story when he denies Jesus three times. So even if you find sympathy for Peter, thinking, I don't know, I think I might have done the same thing. Hopelessly outnumbered by a big crowd of people, outmanned, having more weapons, more people, and he's, he's going down fighting. 
I don't quite know the picture. I don't know if we have enough details. The word sword here seems like it's a shorter sword. Is, is he just kind of waving it around and it's dark so he accidentally hit some dude's ear? Did he try and chop off his head and missed because he's a fisherman or, or tax collector and, or, or whatever else? Or he, he, he doesn't really have the skills to, to fight with a sword. Regardless of the specifics of this scene, Peter misunderstands Jesus. Jesus is not a violent Jewish nationalist with his zeal trying to overthrow the Roman government. He will do that through his death on a cross. As he is enthroned as the king, ruler over all, buried in the ground, resurrected from the dead, defeating the bigger, darker powers In the same way that we saw in the first point, there's a different kind of power, a different kind of revolution that Jesus is trying to embrace. In the second point, we see this crystallized all the more when he says, I could call on the real power, the power of the angels. And if there's one question I want you to really think about on this point, it's not only are you tapping into that power through prayer, but do you even believe in it? Do you really believe that there is a host, an army, an invisible reality that is forcing its way on us, both for good and for bad? And that Christ says that my power and my kingdom is not going to be with force, but with prayer. Let's move on to our third and final observation about who Jesus is not. And it comes yet again in the words Jesus says as he interacts with another person. Start in verse 49 with me. Let's read it again. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and they laid their hands on Jesus and they seized him. Judas, who was one of the twelve, another little nod there to, I think, further turn the dagger of the stabbing in the back that's happening. Matthew, I think, is highlighting that while he was still speaking. Judas, one of the twelve, somebody that spent a lot of time with Jesus, completely misunderstood who he was. He goes up to Jesus and he kisses him. Now, it may seem weird for you and for me to think, that's a strange sign, but it's really just dark. They maybe have some lanterns, some torches, and they can't really see who's who. There's not social media and a little phone they can pull out with a flashlight and say, oh yeah, there's the one, I got his picture. People's faces wouldn't have been as easily as recognizable maybe as they are to us today. There's all kinds of factors that would be, they needed some sense of like, now which, which guy is he? And Judas says, I will greet him. And then as would have been a customary kind of Middle Eastern greeting, a kiss on the cheek, both sides. He comes up to Jesus and acknowledges to all of this crowd around him, this is the one, sees him. And so I think that that's the best way to understand this kiss is that 
He's just showing all of these people in the middle of the night, in the middle of the dark, here's Jesus. So he says, greetings, rabbi. Kisses him, and Jesus says, friend. The word friend here isn't the most intimate of words that could be used, but it's also not the one you'd expect after being betrayed. Friend. Friend, do what you came to do. This phrase, do what you came to do, is very unclear. It could be one of two options. It could be the phrase, as you see it here, like, go ahead, man, do what you're going to do. Or another option is that it's more of a question, and he is saying, why are you doing this, Judas? Either option, I think, reveals something about the beauty and the majesty of the person, the character, and the mission of Jesus. If I could sum that up, I would say, we've already seen that Jesus is not a violent revolutionary. He has a different kind of revolutionary power. He is not a zealous Jewish nationalist using violence to overthrow the Roman government. And third and finally, he is not an unwilling child that is being abused by his heavenly father. He is calm, resolute, determined, convicted. Yes, I'm in charge here, not you. Especially in light of this, friend, do what you came to do. Go on. He doesn't want Peter to fight and stop the proceedings. He's telling Judas, I'm at peace with this. And so it begs the question regarding the sovereignty of God and the involvement of humans making decisions. And what we find here is that as this event unfolds, Jesus says, this must fulfill the scriptures. This is what the Father's will is. I want you to go forward and do what you're going to do. Do you think about Jesus as somebody who was this really good guy, the son of God, innocent, and then he happened to be struck by an angry, vengeful God of blood and thirsty violence that just wants to crush somebody. Somebody's got to get hurt, so it's going to be Jesus. This is another prevailing view of Jesus and Christianity in America today. It may not be the one that you've been exposed to, but perhaps it has been, and I think it should be crystal clear from our text of Scripture that Jesus is not an innocent bystander that has just fallen underneath of an angry, vengeful, violent God and therefore getting squished and crushed by the wrath of God even though he didn't want to go along with it anyway. The garden makes that point plain. This passage makes this point plain, and the preceding passages make the point plain. And in John's gospel, Jesus summarizes this very clearly when he says, I lay down my life. No one takes my life from me. All of the story of Jesus' death and passion shows that he is submitting himself to the plan of the Father because he wants to. He wants to. 
Do you understand Jesus as somebody that not because he's masochistic or loves suffering, he said in the previous passage, take the cup from me. I wish there would be another way, but I want to follow the scripture's plan. I want to follow your plan, Father. And as we step through, moment by moment, through these stories leading up to the very death of Jesus, hopefully you will see clearly he is in control. God is not up in the heavens being like, oh no, I did not see that coming. Wait, they're betraying him? Wait, they're about to murder him? Humans are acting, but scripture is being fulfilled. Humans are making choices, but God's plans are not being thwarted. Humans are doing violence, and God is using what was meant for evil for the greatest good that has ever happened in the history of the universe. A powerful, upside-down kind of revolution that is filled with self-sacrifice and love. This is what the Bible is communicating in the death of Jesus and in the events surrounding it in Matthew 26 and 27. And I want to encourage all of us to consider those theological realities and convince ourselves that this is the truth, even when our feelings or our culture wants to tell us that this is not ultimate reality. God is sovereign, and Jesus is following the sovereign plan of God by telling Judas, do what you have come to do, friend. What love, what determination, what beauty that you and I could make the same choice that Judas does. Even in our attempts to try and defend Jesus, we could be denying Jesus, as Peter does. And in many cases, each of us, when we sin against him, it is an act of betrayal. It is a stabbing him in the back. It is a kiss of death. It's the reason that he went on the cross in the first place. As John Stott has beautifully and eloquently said, the cross of Christ cannot be something that is for you unless you first realize it was something done by you. And when you put yourself in the story and realize, I'm no better than Judas. I'm no different than Peter. And in many ways, my fleshly tendencies are just like the crowds around both of them. Or the disciples at the very end of our text who left him and fled. It was because of our sin that Jesus died on a cross to remove the penalty, the presence, the power of sin, and rose again from the dead, victorious over all the powers of darkness. Colossians 2 says, disarming them and rising triumphantly to the Father's right hand as he is seated and ruling and reigning. This is who Jesus is. He is a friend of sinners, a friend of betrayers. And I think that the only way you and I will be able to have political conversations is if we foreground the gospel of love where we have a God who does not want to violently inflict justice and pain on his son because he is so angry and upset that he needs to spill blood somewhere. 
but rather sees us in our plight and knows that if justice is going to happen, then he is going to take the matters into his hands and have that justice come upon his own head. So friends, I want to encourage you to receive the good news today afresh that Jesus is a friend of sinners and betrayers like you and me. And it is that gospel that we should be the most excited about, the most interested in, and may it be the centering pole that we continue to revolve around and, and hold and cling on to as we engage one another in this life. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we want to pray for the power of the Spirit and the forces of your host of angels and armies to unleash your love and your Spirit upon our church so that it will multiply in our world. We want to pray for there to be unity, even in the midst of political and racial and ethnic diversity. We want to ask that this church would be able to be a model and an example of how people can love each other even when secondary matters are in differing views and opinions. We want to pray that you would help us to understand who you are and what you have come to accomplish in this world, not through violence, but through your nonviolent, self-sacrificial love. So we want to thank you for this text of Scripture. We want to thank you not just for Jesus being our example, but ultimately for him being our substitute and taking our place and dying on the cross for our sins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.